Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Fan of Astronomy, Episode 5. Welcome everybody, and uh, I'm sorry, uh, hmm, weird things happen. First off, I am the only host this week, my name is Angelo. Dan couldn't wake up or something, I'm not really sure what's going on, he was supposed to be here and things fell through but it is like 4 a.m where he's at and normally it's the other way around where i wake up stupid early or stay up stupid late so he can be on like a normal schedule but this week we had to change things because we're not going to talk about the moon like we promised we did say that hey you know we're going to do this great episode on the moon and we're going to talk about all this regolith and all kinds of other crap that we have going on up there but uh something popped up so we're going to completely ignore the moon for another two weeks but trust me it's well worth the wait and we have a very good reason why we did this but before we get into exactly what those reasons are i would like to tell you guys about our patreon that's patreon.com forward slash astronomy if you go there donate a couple bucks this is a contract between myself dan and you you say hey i'm going to pay you a dollar or two an episode and we say okay we're going to make you episodes and if we don't make them, we don't get paid. So it's kind of a fail-safe there. So, you know, it's not like we're just taking your money. But, you know, this is an incentive for us to produce more and more content for you, such as when we hit a group total of $100 per episode, we're going to do a special episode. And the first special episode is going to be about how the entire universe wants you dead. We're going to talk about all the different ways that the, uh, the universe can and will kill us. So that should be interesting. And then every $100 level that we reach after that, we will also make another special episode. We'll come up with a neat, interesting topic for each one. So please go to patreon.com forward slash astronomy and sign up today. We would very much appreciate that. So today we have uh, an astrophysicist on. 
So that's why we're not talking about the moon. We have somebody who actually knows what he's talking about, which is oh, no. whoa, 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 <laughs> whoa. I don't, I don't want to oversell things. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> so uh, he is a lecturer at the University of Central Michigan. He has worked in the past for uh, Skynet. Yes, he tried to create robots to kill us. Uh, we never gave them <laughs> weapons. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, but eventually they they figure it out, man. Okay, uh, he went to college at the University of Notre Dame. I'm sure you've heard of that. He received his Ph.D. from Michigan State and did some postgraduate work for UNC. And all that stuff sounds very, very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Impressive. But the most impressive thing he's ever done is he managed to befriend me. So. <laughs> oh, see, I thought it was going to be the bow ties. That's the impressive part. But, oh, no, sure. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we'll go with that. Cool. <laughs> I mean, let's see. At the time I met you, I was a landscaper. You was an astrophysicist. That's not exactly, you know, two fields that crossed very often. <laughs> well, you know, not necessarily, but my favorite job when I was in college, I was actually a groundskeeper at the golf course at the University of Notre Dame, and that was like my favorite job that I had uh, when I was young. So I, I, I feel you, man, getting out there, uh, working working with the lawn and, and the dirt. Yeah, I'm all over it. Yeah, I mean, it's really, I don't know, that was a fun job when I was doing it. So uh, I should also mention that this episode should be, you shouldn't notice much of a difference as far as quality goes. It's not like we went out and found an astrophysicist who never talks on a microphone. No, Clues is on multiple podcasts, so. Uh, that is true. That is true. And I've been known to uh, stand around and talk about astronomy for hours and hours and hours pretty much every day of the week because it's, it's kind of my jam. It's what I do. Yeah, I should say his actual name is Aaron Lacluse. Oh, that's true. Yes. Um, he is, you know, astrophysicist Aaron Lockluze. I've known him for a long time, and I'm just going to call him Clues for the sake of just normality for me. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say for sanity. Yeah, please. I, I even encourage my students to call me. It's just easier that way, right? I, I would think as much. So we have some interesting things that we need to go over today. But first and foremost, um, I have a couple questions exactly for you. Uh, what? All right, great. What exactly is your field of study in the world of astrophysics? Right. So that is a somewhat complicated question. Here's here's a weird thing that you're going to notice in particular about uh, scientists in general, physicists specifically, and I'm going to say astronomers and astrophysicists even more specifically. You walk up to them with what seems like a simple question, like something that only needs like a yes or a no or just a single sentence, and their answer always begins with, well, that's complicated. And then they go on for like 20 minutes. And this this is no exception there. So back in the day when I was a younger man, in my early days of graduate school, I studied primarily pulsating variable stars. So these are stars that their brightness changes over time. Uh, the, the particular kind of variable star I was interested in was called an R.R. Lyrae variable star. They're named after the first star we noticed that does this. Certainly not the only stars, but lots of them do. And so our Lyrae stars, they get brighter and they get dimmer uh, by a eh, ballpark about half a magnitude. If you know the magnitude scale, if you don't, don't worry about it. It just it gets brighter and dimmer. That's all you need to know. And it does it on a time scale of about half a day. And that alone is kind of impressive. It's a star that periodically gets brighter, then gets dimmer, then gets brighter, then gets dimmer. And it does it periodically. It's very regular. 
But what's even more impressive about these stars is they're not just getting brighter and dimmer. They're actually pulsating. They're actually physically getting bigger and getting smaller over that half a day time scale. And that's what makes them brighter and dimmer. So we could do a whole like hour talking about pulsating variable stars if you wanted to. But that's that's what I used to do back in the day, early hmm. graduate. OK, I, I just figured out a future episode. Then next time we have clues on <laughs> late uh, late graduate school and my my actual dissertation uh, I was studying active galactic nuclei or AGN and so these are the centers of galaxies that are extremely bright uh, that the center of the galaxy outshines the rest of the galaxy by a, a fairly large uh, margin. And uh, what's going on there is there's a supermassive black hole down at the core of, we believe, pretty much every galaxy ever. But in these AGNs, uh, there's an accretion disk. There's material that's actually falling into the black hole, and it's that accretion disk that's really, really bright. That's the light that we're seeing here. Uh, we think all galaxies might go through uh, a time period when they're active and then later turn off when they run out of matter to gobble up. But that's, that's again, that's a story for a whole other podcast. Uh, but that's what I studied in uh, late graduates. Okay. Then I went off to UNC Chapel Hill, where I was working for the nice folks who built Skynet, which is a robotic telescope network. It has nothing to do with uh, enslaving humanity or killing John Connor specifically. Uh, but it is a global network of robotic telescopes that were used to study gamma ray bursts. And gamma ray bursts are, uh, well, as as the name implies, they are bursts of gamma rays. But what's causing the gamma rays, these are the death of a supermassive star. So extremely massive stars, things that are, you know, 50, 100 times the size of the sun. Uh, when they die, they explode in a supernova. Uh, but prior to exploding in a supernova, they give off a thing called a gamma ray burst in certain circumstances. Not all of them will look like a gamma ray burst, but some do. And so, so we... We developed telescopes to uh, study those things. So is it fair to say that during that period of time you studied supernovae? Uh, yes, I suppose. By the time they started to look like supernova, we didn't care anymore, honestly. We we really cared about the early times, the, the beginning, when it looked like a gamma ray burst. Okay, but it's it's all one process, at least I... in my mind. It, it is related. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> that is perfectly fair to say. Uh, so that's what I studied at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, and I did quite a bit of teaching while I was down there. And then I moved up to Central Michigan University here in the great state of Michigan. Uh, it is centrally located in Michigan, as the name implies, in beautiful Mount Pleasant, Michigan. And here I mostly teach. Uh, as you said, I'm a lecturer here, so I was hired primarily to teach here. So I don't do a lot of research here, but I am getting my toes back into the research game. And I'm actually returning to my first love. I'm returning to pulsating variable stars. So... I just started up a project with a, with a couple of students uh, here at CMU to uh, look at some pulsating variable stars using the telescope we have right here on campus. So uh, that is that's kind of my research resume. Uh, I've dabbled in a lot of stuff, but uh, I've I've even dabbled in uh, legal work uh, to help get telescopes built, and I did some architectural work to help design getting telescopes built. Uh, I did some import-export stuff to ship parts to Australia. I mean, I've, I've dabbled in all kinds of stuff, uh, but, you know, that's the name of the game uh, around these parts, I suppose. Okay, for anybody who is a f follower of our Facebook page, you'll notice that I mentioned digressions on top of digressions. We're going to get those. <laughs> yeah, we will. That is also my jam, is uh, digressing. It's a thing I do. 
Okay, so the reason I asked about the field of study and I asked specifically about do you study supernovae is because our main topic today is going to kind of be in the world of supernovae, but I have a couple more questions for you. Sure, absolutely. Now, you mentioned one specific love, uh, your very first area of study. Uh, What exactly got you into that field? Yeah, okay, so that is also a somewhat complicated question. Part of it was uh, someone I met in graduate school. So one of my profs back at Michigan State was a guy by the name of Horace Smith, and he literally wrote the book on R.R. Lyrie Variable Stars. It's called R.R. Lyrie by Horace Smith. And it is like it's it's the the gold standard of what we know about our Lyrae stars, and it just so happens that he worked at uh, MSU. So the beauty of uh, variable stars. So let's let's back up. Oh, Going to be so many digressions. I hope we can get this show done in a reasonable amount of time. Um, sorry in advance, listeners, if we fail. Um, the thing about observatories around the world is they tend to be built in very remote locations because you want some place that is away from light pollution. You want some place that is really high so that you've got as little atmosphere between you and space as possible. And you need some place where the weather is really, really stable so that you have mostly clear weather. You're not having snow and rain all the time. So these are built in remote locations on the top of mountains. That ten- tends to be where they are. The problem with remote locations on the tops of mountains is that's not where we build universities. So if you want to actually go and use a telescope, like as part of your studies in uh, in college or in graduate school, you usually have to fly to a telescope somewhere uh, to do it. It's usually a terrible flight and customs is usually involved. It's just awful. But there are certain objects that it kind of doesn't matter as long as you have a decent telescope. You don't need those sorts of conditions. As long as the skies are clear, it doesn't matter if it's high. It doesn't matter if it's dry. You don't need perfect observing conditions for certain objects. Variable stars are one of those because all you really care about is that pulsation, how how it's varying from its brightest to its dimmest. So it doesn't matter if the seeing conditions were eh, that's fine, as long as you can still make out that 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 change in brightness as it goes. So variable stars are one of the few things that you can study from pretty much anywhere, as long as you have a telescope. And so it's the perfect opportunity to get involved with research at, you know, a late undergraduate or a graduate level. And that's what happened at MSU. I'd, I'd always loved telescopes. And so I had the opportunity to start working with Dr. Smith on uh, variable stars there at Michigan State at the, the beautiful 24-inch Bowler and Shivens Telescope in State University. And I did. And it was absolutely fun. I spent several summers not getting basically any sleep because I was staying up all night babysitting a telescope. But it was it was an absolute blast. And so that's that's really what got me into it. It was an object that I could contribute to scientifically, even while observing in mid-Michigan conditions, because, yeah, the skies around here are not great. No, Uh, I know that the jet stream flows over Michigan a lot because it comes down to Pennsylvania, where I'm located, and uh, it's cloudy probably about 200 days a year. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, (laughs) northern Indiana, where Notre Dame is, is not much different. And so back when I was an undergraduate, we described our skies uh, as being a quote unquote perma gray because it was permanently gray. It was just all the time. That's what you got. Uh, So, yeah, it's it's not great. I mean, like tonight, uh, tonight here it is cloudy, raining, and we have wind gusts of about 25 miles an hour. So, yeah, perfect weather to stay inside and do a podcast about astronomy. 
Yeah, very similar to mine, actually. The wind gusts are actually shaking my house on time to time. But what yeah. do you do? <laughs> mine, too. If you suddenly hear a crash, that's the window in my kitchen blowing open. So I'll duck off Mike if that happens. Okay, and uh, this is going to sound like a stupid question. Yeah. But you're obviously, you know, you love science. Um, I do. One of your strange nicknames is, what, Dr. Science? Dr. Science, that is correct, yes. Yeah, so what got you exactly into science in general? Because for each person, I, I know for me it was specifically a certain teacher, and it tends right. to be the same way for most people who are really into science. Yeah, so my journey to where I am uh, came about, you know, the usual ways. Uh, one morning I woke up and I was an astrophysicist. No, that's not happening. <laughs> so I've always been interested in science from a very young age. I always wanted to know how things worked, what made the world tick, what is it that's going on. And so I was, I was always the nerdy kid who was reading books. And, uh, I, I think in fact one of the earliest books I remember reading, it was this big red book written for children. And I swear it was named How stuff works, uh, I, I think. Been a long time. Uh, but I was always interested in science, so I figured that's probably what I would go into, is something in science. And growing up in South Bend, as you go through the, the public school system there, there is a set sequence of science courses that you take, because they don't just throw you off the deep end immediately. The first thing you take is biology, and I took biology, and I thought, wow, this is amazing science. It smells a little bad when we dissect stuff, but still, it's really cool. I, I like this a lot. Maybe I'll become a biologist. And then the next year, I took chemistry, and I said, hmm, it seems to me that biology, and no offense to biologists, but biology is really just applied chemistry. Chemistry is a more fundamental science. Maybe I'll become a chemist, but yep. honestly, it actually smells worse than the biology because, man, we're using all kinds of crazy stuff that can eat your face off. So that's that's a little scary. Not a big fan of that. Then I found physics, and my high school physics teacher was a guy named Dale Wyand, absolutely great guy. And I loved physics. I, I didn't actually do well at it. I'll be honest. The first time I took a physics course, I barely squeaked by in that. But I loved it because all of chemistry is just applied physics. So yeah. physics is basically the most fundamental science I could find. And, and uh, hold on. I can I can hear you listeners composing angry tweets. Hold on. I know that some of you are going to say that math is more fundamental than physics. And sure, but I consider math really a language rather than a science. And that's fine. We can have this debate. That's perfectly okay. I, that's not to belittle math in any way. It is the tool that we need to do everything that we do. It's just that's not for me. So uh, physics was where it was at for me. And so I went off to college and I majored in physics. Uh, because I wanted to uh, feel ostracized when I went to parties, and so that worked out really well for me. Which it, that's kind of a joke. If anyone, if you really want, if you're in college and listening to this, try the fun experiment of next time you're at a party and someone asks what your major is, tell them physics and see the change that comes over their face as they process what you've just said. Uh, it's it's eerie. Uh, the, the way that works. So I went into physics and uh, physics is wonderful. But when you get done with a physics undergraduate education, you have a degree in physics, but that's not what you do in grad school. You don't go to grad school for physics. You have to subspecialize. You go into something like condensed matter or high energy. And I didn't really want to subspecialize. I wanted to continue to dabble in pretty much everything. And that's where astronomy and astrophysics came in, because as as an astrophysicist, you have to deal with everything from the largest scale structures of the universe 
all the way down to subatomic particles that, uh, like quantum mechanics holds up certain kinds of stars. I mean, you have to dabble in the whole range of everything, but you don't have to be perfect at any of it. Because, you know, if the, uh, the high energy physics gets to be a little too much, eh, just go find a high energy physicist and talk to them and they'll totally help you out. So I decided that uh, astrophysics was totally the way to go. Uh, and that's how I ended up where I am. Okay, so that's really cool. I know my first year of physics, it seemed like horrible math. It seemed like a horrible math course because yes. that's all it was, was just the basic principles of physics. Like, okay, this is ridiculous. But I can remember my the reason I got into science, I had a teacher one time who pointed out to me, because I didn't know I was in, you know, right. I was the jock. I played football, basketball, baseball, you know, and I had no hey, clue. Hey, all of those things involve physics. They, they do. I had no clue that I was into science, and then she pointed it out to me. She goes, you do realize that you question everything, right? And I went, well, yeah, you got to. She goes, that's what makes a good scientist. It is. And I went, oh, and that's when I started to really look into other things and went, holy crap, I am really into science and even realized. That's one of those neat things. Okay, my last question before we get into the actual meat of the conversation is sure. why is a bow tie superior to a Windsor knot? Uh, okay, so first of all, we're comparing apples to pears here because uh, we're comparing a bow tie to a specific knot with a long tie. But but I I think I will answer the question that is implied here, which is why is a bow tie better than a long tie? And there are lots of reasons. Uh, reason number one, uh, a bow tie uh, never gets in the way, right? It, it doesn't, uh, you don't end up dragging it in your food. Uh, you don't, you don't spill anything on it. You don't get it caught in paper cutters. I mean, that's, bow ties are superior in so many ways uh, to the long tie. Uh, for that matter, and this is a subtle one that not everyone realizes, uh, bow ties are smaller. Now, I know it sounds dumb when you say it out loud that way, but suppose you're packing for a trip and you're going to be gone for seven days. And therefore, you need seven ties because you're obviously not going to repeat ties. I mean, what are you, some sort of barbarian? So you now pack seven ties. Seven bow ties take up way less space than seven long ties. So just think about that. Just just put it there. You could carry a spare bow tie in your bag at all times, and that would be just be fine. You wouldn't even notice. It would be great. In fact, now that I think about it, I should, I should carry a spare bow tie. I should yeah. point out that this is a bit of an inside joke. Mr. Lacluse here, he wears bow ties everywhere. So I do. I do. And there are a number of reasons for that. So uh, folks will often ask me, hey, why why do you wear bow ties? And well, they're better, first of all. Uh, second ah. of all, uh, I think that bow ties really fit my personality so much so that I recently went to a class reunion for college and I went back and I was wearing a bow tie, of course. And a friend of mine uh, from college uh, ran into me and goes, Clues, hey, you're you're wearing a bow tie, and it looks so correct. I have now retroactively put that bow tie on you in all of my memories of you, and it looks fine. So great. So uh, apparently I've always been a bow tie guy, even when not wearing bow ties. Um, I also, you know, of course, a uh, big fan of Bill Nye. Um, so that's that's a thing. Uh, my favorite college professor in undergraduate, at an astronomer, in fact, named Grant Matthews at uh, the University of Notre Dame, he was a bow tie guy, and so uh, he was a big influence on me as well. And so I, I ended up wearing bow ties. Uh, yeah, I'm a long tie guy myself. I do like the Windsor knot. I think it's classic. Sure. It's dignified. So, yeah. you know, I, I do the Windsor knot when I do wear a tie, which if you've ever met me outside of, you're not going to see me in a tie dress and sure of when I'm working. <laughs> but, you know, I, when I do wear a tie, I think that for me, the long tie is just right. And by the way, you don't have to worry about getting it into crap if you buy a tie clip. That's true. A tie clip will help. Yeah, it helps a lot. It's amazing how 
you just get it in nothing once you own one. Although I will say that when I was younger and I first started wearing ties to like funerals and and you'd go to get a drink out of the water fountain, that was always a pain in the butt. You had to hold the tie back. And Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that became a pain. Hello. Are you enjoying the show so far? I hope you are. Well, if so, I encourage you all to pause the show. Don't worry. We'll wait. Go to facebook.com forward slash fan of astronomy and hit that like button. You'll be one of the first people to know when a new episode comes out. Also, on that page, the guys post articles on the latest news in the astronomy field and outer space in general. You also get to interact with the hosts of our show, Dan and Angelo, there. So please, hit that like button on Facebook. Thanks. The reason we actually have clues on today is because something happened in the world that we normally would have put in our news section, which, you know, it, it's okay. But after talking to uh, clues about this via Twitter... He confused me. <laughs> oh, okay. Ex- excellent. The uh, math you know. is way beyond where I would have, as deep as I would have went. So, like, I'm like, okay, I need him to actually explain this to me because I, it's actually just above my head. I'm going to openly admit that, and I'm okay with that because not knowing something is just a way for you to learn something new. That's right. And I, I'm I'm actually very excited about this. I would have summed it up as very quickly: Hey, the universe isn't expanding. They found a lack of dark matter or something, and that would have been that whole new section. <laughs> <laughs> well, thankfully I'm here, so we can uh, we can maybe flesh that out uh, a bit. So before we do, I I want to take a step back, uh, a minor digression, and I wanna I wanna say a couple of things. There might be a little salt in what's about to come, and I apologize for that in advance. Okay. Yeah. So what we are dealing with here is uh, there have been a few articles in what I'm going to call the popular press, and you can't hear the quotes I'm putting around that, but I'm totally putting quotes around that. Uh, there have been a few articles in the popular press recently with some weird headlines uh here's 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 one for example uh uh this one that comes to us from the website sciencealert.com and the title is quote no the universe is not expanding at an accelerated rate say physicists i don't like this kind of reporting now the reason that i don't is the popular press has a tenuous grasp at best of how science actually works okay it's it's black magic voodoo that that some crazy eggheads in some ivory towers do, and that's all they know. And yeah. they occasionally just grab clickbait headlines and throw this out there. Yeah, so, very few of them actually hire. Back in, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, you'd find a reputable news source, news outlet, popular yep. one, and they always had a a guy who was dedicated to science who had actual science degrees and couldn't explain things and now you know those guys got too expensive so yeah, now they find expensive. guys like me and they're like here you're interested in this go write about it yeah so we end up with a lot of uh, it's, it's not flat out lies but it's, it's at, at best partial understanding of what really happened here so uh, that that's what i'll say about these sorts of articles uh, just right off the bat and you'll also tend to never hear the follow-up you'll, you'll get the the real whiz-bang headline, oh, we have overturned all of theoretical physics. In other news, this kitten was found in a tree. <laughs> and uh, you never get the follow-up where we're like, well, no, that study was flawed, or no, we found additional evidence, or, you know, you, you never get to the, the, the gory details of it. And that's that's probably okay, I guess, because it's not very... Uh, the, the actual process of science is not as exciting as you want it. 
Uh, you know, making sausage, you don't want to know how the sausage is made sometimes. You just want to enjoy the sausage, right? Yeah. So in order for us to discuss, for instance, this article that claims that the universe is not expanding at an accelerated rate, we're going to have to back way the heck up. Okay, so what I'm going to do, uh, and, and I have to admit, this is something that I talk about at length in my intro astronomy classes that I teach, but it usually takes me about a week uh, to go from introducing this topic to getting to the punchline. And we have, based on my calculations, about 40 minutes. Yep. So, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and try and condense it as much as possible. And I'm, I'm gonna gloss over some things. I'm gonna speak in some generalities. Uh, some of the things I say won't be 100% scientifically perfect, but it will be enough to get the idea across. Uh, well, the to, thing to is, the listeners out there. Well, the thing is, and I, I should point this out that, we're just fans of science. We're not scientists, so if we get a generality that helps us understand the situation, then for the most part, I think myself and the listeners are fine with it. We don't need to get into the grimy details of things. We just, we need to know what to know. Right. Okay, good. So, uh, here's what we're gonna do. Let's, let's start with, uh, some, some teeny tiny basics, and I guarantee that we will pick up steam after that. So let's start with the following basic. Uh, matter attracts other matter. Right, so we've got gravity. So there's this force, this invisible force. Anything with mass will pull on anything else with mass. Okay? So if we were to look, and we're going to start looking at large-scale structures. So let's look at, say, the the galaxy as a whole. So the Milky Way galaxy, the galaxy that we, we live in that we call home. What we could do is we could look at all the stars that are orbiting the center of the Milky Way, and we could ask... How fast are those stars orbiting around? Because they've got some speed as they go around. And we could say, well, given the speed that it's got as it's going around, how much mass is there in the galaxy to keep that star from flying off into space? Okay. Uh, you can think of it just like the orbits of the planets around the sun. The reason that the planets don't just fly off into space is because the sun, its gravitational pull is holding the planets there. Ooh, ooh, Same ooh, idea ooh. with the galaxy. I think I have a great example of this. So you have the people who do like the ball and chain shot put things and they spin around and they spin around and they spin around. And when they let go, the ball goes flying. But yes, that center mass would be like the man would be like the supermassive black hole that holds that in place. Sure. Okay. So that's what we're looking at. We're looking at centrifugal force and why isn't it flying off? Because something is not letting it go. Right. So I, I, other than the fact that with the with the the, the chain shot put thing, uh, gravity doesn't just let go. But same idea, right? Yeah. Okay, well, that, that yeah. We're we're being held. The chain in this in this example is gravity. So if we look at galaxies and we look at the stars in the outer edges of the galaxy, uh, they're moving around at a pretty good clip, and it implies that there's more mass inside of that galaxy than we can account for if we were to just add up the mass of all the stars that we see. So it implies that there is mass there that we cannot see. It interacts gravitationally, but it doesn't glow. We call that mass dark matter. It's something that is matter. It it, it pulls via gravity, but it doesn't glow like a star would. Okay, and we can thank Vera Rubin for this, who came Uh, up with the galaxy rotational problem. Absolutely, absolutely. 
so these galaxy, ro- we, we refer to this as, as galaxy rotation curves. So you make a, a plot of what the velocity of stars are as a function of distance from the center of the galaxy. And so you can use that to figure out uh, how much mass there is in a galaxy. And it wasn't too long before uh, uh, Vera, among others, realized, hey, there's there's a problem here. There's way more mass in galaxies than we can see. And so this missing mass was merely labeled dark matter. And this is not any kind of a judgment on uh, the quality of the matter or whether it's evil or, or what. It's just we can't see it. That's that's why. It's, but we know it's there. OK, we can see its effect, but we can't see it directly. OK, you'll see that this this will come up uh, time and time again. So that's dark matter. And the thing is, as we go out to larger and larger and larger scale structures in the universe, we find that there's more matter that's missing. If I look instead of at a single galaxy, if I look at, say, a cluster of galaxies, because galaxies orbit one another. And so if you look at a big group of galaxies that are all orbiting each other, you can ask, well, how much mass has to be in there to keep that group of galaxies together? And it's way more mass than is accounted for from just the stars in the individual galaxies. In fact, it's more mass than is accounted for if you took the individual galaxies and included the dark matter you think is in those galaxies. So the bigger the structure, the more dark matter we seem to need to make everything work right. Now, this isn't the only evidence for dark matter. There's there's other evidence for dark matter. Uh, you can look at how not the stars behave, but the, how the gas around the galaxy behaves. And so you're looking at different wavelengths of light to pull that off. Uh, and so, again, you need dark matter for that. Uh, you can look at a really weird thing called gravitational lensing. And gravitational lensing is this absolutely spectacular thing that was predicted by relativity. And that is that mass, since, you know, mass pulls on other mass, it's not really pulling on other mass. What it's doing is warping space time, which that's a whole nother. I could spend like half an hour talking about space time. Uh, but the the takeaway, the, the real thing you need to know is that mass will bend light. So if I have a galaxy and I've got uh, another galaxy behind it, like way off in the distance, the light from the distant galaxy will get bent around the nearby galaxy. And so you can get ghost images of the distant galaxy. You'll ironically have the distant galaxy get brighter because there's something in the way because of how it bends the light. That's why we call it gravitational lensing. Uh, and so gravitational lensing gives you another indirect measurement of how much mass has to be there. And again, you need dark matter to to make up that mass. So okay, you've got a pretty so, good. Hold on, yeah, hold I'm sorry. on. I just I, I'm just trying to uh, dumb this down for the Nimrods like me as much as possible. So when you say like lensing, the way I think yes. of lensing is I have a piece of paper. I'm uh-huh. holding it with two hands. Yes. It's slightly wet, so it has a little give to it. Okay. Somebody takes a ball bearing and sets it on one end. That ball uh-huh. bearing begins to sink a little bit into the paper. Sure. Somebody else takes another ball bearing and sets it on the other end, and that sinks into the paper. And slowly, uh-huh. as I hold that paper, those ball bearings, their little divots, will begin to go towards each other. But the divot itself is what the lensing is, correct? Uh, yeah, the divot itself is the lensing. Okay. Okay. So, uh, gotcha. You, you can think about it. Uh, let's... Let's use a, a let's let's get a big rubber sheet. Okay, so we're going to take a rubber sheet the size of say a kitchen table. Fair. And we're going to we're going to set a bowling ball in the center of it. Okay, and the bowling ball is going to make a divot. It's going to make a warp. Yeah, it's going to drop the middle of the sheet quite a bit. Right. Yes. And so now imagine that light is trying to travel in a straight line across that sheet. Well, in order for it to actually follow a straight line, it's following a straight line in a curved space. And so it will actually curve around that mass in the middle. Okay. okay. So that's that's the lensing part. 
is that we're bending the light. Because right. light's going to try and travel in a straight line. Okay, so we so need that gravity warp to create the lens. Gotcha. Yes. And so by measuring how much lensing we see, how much the light gets bent, we, we indirectly measure how much mass is there to yeah. create that bend. Something so has to pretty, be there. Gotcha. We've got a pretty good handle that dark matter does, and uh, dark matter out, outnumbers normal matter by a fairly large margin. And we'll get to the exact margin here in, in a little bit. There's at least one more way to measure uh, dark matter, and I know we're supposed to be talking about the accelerating universe, and we haven't even gotten there yet, but trust me, this will all pay off, I swear. <laughs> hey, you got to have the basis. That's why we started in the solar system, and we're staying yes. in the solar system because you need to have the foundation before you move on, and I understand that this is a complicated subject. I'm sure the listeners understand it, and I, I know I've promised the people we'd stay in, but when we have a physicist on, we do have to go to interesting things outside. Yeah, you've you've got to walk before you can run, and we just went to like tightrope walking. Right. Like we just we just like went way on the other end, but that's fine. It's 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 perfectly okay. We'll get through this together, you and I. Okay. That's to the listeners too. We're, we're, you're with us too. I totally. Hope. <laughs> so uh, there is this thing called the cosmic microwave background radiation, and this is another topic that deserves its entire own show. Quite it frankly, will, it will get one here in the future. We have already scheduled that one in. That's that's cool. <laughs> but here is like your two-second introduction to cosmic microwave background radiation. If you look out into space in all directions, pretty much everywhere, there is this really, really faint signal way out in the radio, actually out in the microwaves, which radio, uh, that we can detect in all directions. And Dude, this, I don't know what's wrong with your house, but my radio and my microwave are two different things. Uh, well, uh, technically, yes, <laughs> but they are both using the same technology. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. Fair enough. One cooks food and the other one yeah, plays music. Say, <laughs> one cooks food and uh, the other one is your microwave. Um, so, <laughs> just just kidding. If we do a detailed measurement of the cosmic microwave background radiation of the signal that's coming in from all directions, there's some tiny little fluctuations in it, and the way those fluctuations look indicate to us that there is dark matter. Okay. Now, that's a really complicated thing. You're just going to have to trust me on this one. And if you've made it this far, I think you're willing to trust me. So uh, so there we go. That's dark matter in a nutshell. Now, I will say, in addition to the paper uh, papers that we're going to talk about, at least briefly, involving the, ex- the expanding universe, there are some papers that are suggesting that dark matter doesn't exist. I don't buy them. Um, most of them are using this thing called modified Newtonian dynamics that basically says that uh, gravity works one way on small scales like a solar system, but works a different way on large scales like a galaxy, and therefore you don't need dark matter. There are some problems with these sorts of theories. Mond is is a wonderful concept, and conceptually you explain it that way, and you're like, oh, so I don't need this invisible magical matter that I can't see but works via gravity? Great, sign me up! The problem is they don't, none of the theories of Mond actually work mathematically as well as just introducing dark matter. In fact, some of the versions of Mond, you still have to add dark matter on top of it to make them match with observations. So it's not, it's not great. Okay. I, I don't want to disparage Mond too much, but it's, it, it doesn't seem to be winning as far as comparing theory to observation. So let's, let's just table Mond. But I, sh- in, in fairness, I should at least mention that there, there are those who do not, uh, quite buy the whole dark matter thing, even though, uh, we've been working on it since the 1930s. So. Well, I mean. Had some time. They worked on a flat earth for a couple hundred years as well. 
And well, it actually, turned out okay, we was wrong. On, so hold on. I, I, since you brought it up, I have to bring this up too. There is a widely held misconception. Yeah, I know. I, those that people... people believe the Earth were flat, was flat for a long, long time, and 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 we didn't. We've actually known that the Earth was a sphere since uh, ancient Greek times. But that's that's also that also may be a story for another day. Uh, although I thought you was going to get into the, I, I was going to say I thought you was going to get into the widespread new movement of flat earthers that makes zero <laughs> sense to me. I was going to say I still do meet people to this very day who tell me that not only is the Earth flat, but that we have not been to space at all, and that all of NASA is a lie, all of it, every last bit, and that is. Okay, I'm just going to call it. That's dumb. I'm sorry. It's just it flies in the face of so much evidence and that we we could you could do a show on uh, moon landing conspiracy theories and uh, we could talk about that for hours as well. But let's get back to yeah. the universe. So, all right. Now, in addition to all of this dark matter, we can talk about what the universe is made up of. So at least so far, we've got two things. The Earth is made up of normal matter, stuff that glows if you make it hot. So stuff like stars, your desk, uh, my microphone, Angelo, all these things are made of <laughs> Gee, normal thanks. matter. Well, hey, I'm, I'm made of normal matter, too, as I know. Um, so all of these things are normal matter. The thing is, normal matter is outnumbered by a significant factor by dark matter. There's a lot more dark matter than there is normal matter. So all the normal stuff that you know and love makes up a small fraction of what the universe is. But it gets even worse than that, because it turns out, and I'm going to go ahead and introduce the concept, and then we'll circle back around to why we think it exists. There is in the universe not just dark matter, but dark energy. And okay, so now I have to digress for, for yet another minute, because I do like to digress here. Uh, there was a really, really smart guy that existed back in the day. His name was Albert Einstein. And Albert Einstein, among other things, came up with this very, very famous equation that you will often see in television and movies whenever someone wants to seem smart. They'll put it on a chalkboard in the background. And it is E equals MC squared. And so E equals MC squared, if we just look at this equation, we've got E, which is energy, energy. That's on one side of the equation. On the other side, we've got M, which is mass, and we've got C squared, speed of light. C, C times C, which is the speed of light. Yeah. So it's basically telling me that energy and mass are equivalent, that they behave the same, at least in some regime, in some way. Energy and mass are equivalent. So when we talk about what the universe is made of, we need to talk about not just the mass that's in the universe, but the energy that's in the universe as well. So... Let's now, from this point on, think about what the universe is composed of as being two distinct. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Categories of things. We've got energy and we've got mass. And we have ways of figuring out how much of each of those the universe is made up of. And hmm. so uh, here's here's one of the ways that we do this. So you remember that cosmic microwave background radiation we talked about earlier? Yes. If you look at the bumps and wiggles in there, what you're really doing is measuring uh, what the universe is made of uh, as far as energy and matter. How much energy is there? How much matter is there? And if you do that, if you look at the, the CMBR and you ask the question, hey, how much energy is there? How much mass is there? You're going to find that there is approximately 70% of the universe is made up of energy. And approximately 30% of the universe is made up of matter. And in fact, of that 30% that's matter, only 5% is normal matter. The other 25% is dark matter. Okay. So all of the things ever, everywhere that we look at makes up at most 5% of the mass energy budget of the universe. And so now you can ask the question, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. You kind of lost me. How in God's name do you come up with 70% of the universe is energy and 30% of the universe is matter? Uh, so I'm going to introduce uh, just one more thing before we finally, I swear, get to supernovae and this accelerating universe thing. The universe, we believe, is flat. Okay, wait a minute. Hold on. Hold the phone. Just a minute ago, you were complaining that we don't believe that the Earth is flat. Now you're going to tell me the universe is flat. What in the world do you mean by that? Not only that, but like 10 minutes ago, I swear to God, Clues, 10 minutes ago, you told me that mass warps space-time, and you talked about rubber sheets being curved, but now you're telling me it's flat? What? What is all that about? Okay. It's all relative. About, we're talking about flat in a different way here. Yeah. We're talking about the geometry of space-time itself. Not not a warp in it locally, but how does it behave on large scales? So let's ask the following question. Angelo, if I asked you to draw a parallel, a pair of parallel lines on a piece of paper, could you do that? Yes. Okay, and your parallel lines, would they ever cross one another? They shouldn't. And, and they're not going to because your paper is flat. But if I crumple That's, my paper, they will. But if... But if you crumple your paper, they will. And so a lot of people will go, okay, so if we warp space-time, yeah, sure, my parallel lines will cross, great. But that was lensing, I guess. That's not quite what we mean here. Okay, let's let's try and approach it a different way. In a universe where the geometry is what we call flat, which is the kind of universe we think we live in, parallel lines will be truly parallel forever we don't need to don't don't worry about any masses that we put into the system in fact just just ignore the masses altogether we're just going to aim through space where there's no mass we're just going to we'll aim carefully it'll be but if i had two parallel lines they will stay parallel forever that is a flat universe if the universe is curved either curved like a sphere so that's one kind of curvature or what if you curved it the other way? Like, you could think of it as kind of the inside of a sphere instead of the outside of a sphere is maybe one way to do it. It's usually referred to as a saddle shape rather than uh, a, a spherical shape. 
either your parallel lines will eventually cross or your parallel lines will eventually diverge. And we don't think the universe behaves that way. Now, you might ask, well, how did, how did you guys test that? Cause I don't, I don't actually, I don't think you did it with lasers and, and, and a big ruler and measured it forever. It's actually slightly more subtle than that. Uh, another way you can think about it is uh, imagine that you were going to draw a triangle. If I had you draw a triangle on a piece of paper and I had you add up all the angles on the inside of that triangle, man, we're getting back to this math. Uh, and I had you add up all the angles on the inside of that triangle. They should add up to 180 degrees. Yep. And if they don't, you have not made a triangle. Regardless of whether it's an obtuse or uh, the other one. That's that's right. It doesn't matter if it's uh, if it's obtuse or acute or isosceles yeah. or right triangle. It should end up with 180 degrees total in all of those. Trigonometry. That's that's because your piece of paper is flat. If your piece of paper were curved, it would not be 180 degrees. And so we could, if we wanted to, and we kind of have, put some satellites in space and make a make a triangle out of them and see what the angles look like. You could do that. Uh, here's another weird way to think about it that I I ran across this one I think sometime last week. Uh, imagine that I have gone out into space and I have I have a, a machine that can build a perfect cube. Okay, so can you picture a perfect cube in your mind? A, a cube where every corner is 90 degrees. Right? Yeah. So I have this perfect cube. Now imagine that I just start manufacturing perfect cubes and I just keep stacking them together to make a big long line of cubes. And then I go back to the beginning and I make a second big long line of cubes underneath it and then another one underneath it. And I make one on all the sides and I just keep stack packing cubes together, packing cubes together. If space time, if the geometry of space time is flat, all of those cubes will always interlock together and there will never be any space where they start to diverge where my lines of cubes start to curve. But if space-time isn't flat, they won't lock together. Eventually, as I go far enough along, there'll start to be a little gap between them as I put the next line on, okay? We're pretty sure that the universe is flat. Um, one of the ways that we do it is actually those, those bumps and wiggles in the cosmic microwave background radiation. Uh, another way we can do it is look at actually the geometry of lines in space uh, to see that it's flat. But here's the reason that I bring all of this up. The reason I went into this whole digression about flatness. If the universe is flat, we think it is, it's, it's in fact, it's disturbingly flat. It is shockingly flat. It is, uh, like flat to, uh, uh, you know, like better than 1%. It's flat. I mean, we're, we're like really, really, it's disturbingly flat, quite frankly. Is it? I mean, when you think about it, like everything in our universe, once it's gotten some time, like yeah. every galaxy is relatively flat. Every solar system within said galaxy is relatively flat. I okay, mean, that's, yes. that's a different kind of flatness. And okay. I, I know that's, I know that's not a very satisfying answer. But uh, look at it this way. What, what you're trying to do is to build a universe where, let's call it your flatness parameter, is exactly one. It's not 0.9. It's not 1.1. It's not 0.4. It's exactly one. Okay. Getting to exactly one is tricky. It's hard to do. It's actually strange that it's exactly flat. It's easy to build a universe that's slightly curved in one direction or the other. It's hard to make one that's flat. Uh, it's kind of like it's it's really hard. Uh, just freehand a straight line. Just go right ahead. On a piece of paper, freehand a straight line. That's really hard to do. It's easy to make a line that's eh, mostly straight. It's a little bit curved. That's easy to do. But to make one perfectly straight, that's hard. Yeah, you need so a T-square. 
You do need two square. So it's kind of strange that the universe is perfectly flat, but as near as we can tell, with all of the experiments we do, it's flat. But if it is flat, that means that if I add up how much uh, normal matter there is, how much dark matter there is, and how much energy there is, how much dark energy there is, I should come up with exactly one. And that's why those numbers I gave you earlier, where I said that the energy in the universe is about 0.7 and that the matter in the universe is about 0.3, that adds up to one. That's why it adds up to one. That all makes so sense in a way to me because, you know, I studied a little bit. I spent some time studying thermodynamics and, like, the matter should be less than the energy because all matter is a is energy. Sure. Yeah. Okay, so that, that actually makes sense that we'd have more energy than matter, at least to me. So now, let's take a digression, now that we've gotten that out of the way. That, okay, so I hopefully have convinced you that, even if you don't believe it, not, I'm, I'm talking to the listener here, not necessarily, uh, even if you don't believe that, I hope I have convinced you why we believe the universe is flat. Okay, so leading scientists agree that the universe is flat. Now, let's get to supernovae. And uh, I don't believe you guys have really talked about supernovae all that much uh, in on, on this show yet. Nope. Uh, but the day will come when I'm sure you will discuss it in detail. For now, Absolutely. let's go with star reaches the end of its life, star blows up. Big star. Yes. Big star. Not little star. Big star. star. Big star. <laughs> now, big star blowing up is one kind of supernovae. There's more than one kind. I mean, much like there's more than one way to, to blow something up, there's there's more than one, one kind of supernova. Uh, so the kind of supernova that is a massive star exploding that is what's called a type 2 supernova. And when you say massive star, like what class of star? Because we did go over star classes. So are we talking like, uh, what are they, O class? Uh, yeah, so uh, O, Bs, As, uh, into your, maybe some of your Fs. It really has to do more with the mass than anything else. Okay. And so let's let's table star type and stellar classification for just a minute. Let's think about it just in terms of stellar mass. Any star larger than about eh, 25 solar masses or so is a candidate for blowing up as a supernova. Okay. Uh, things smaller than that, you you can supernova them, but I mean, just if you just want to, let's just say, let's just go 25 and up. Okay, those are going to blow up. They're going to blow up good when they reach the end of their... Um, and those like are a type Hindenburg. Two Bang. <laughs> just uh, like the Hindenburg. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, uh, it's, it's interesting because, uh, no, well, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not digressing on top of that digression yet, maybe. Uh, so, that kind of supernova is actually not useful to me for the discussion we're about to have. And the reason is, a 25 solar mass star could blow up as a supernova, but so could a 40 mass, 40 solar mass star blow up in a supernova, or a 100 solar mass star blow up in a supernova. But each of those will look different because they're different amounts of stuff that's blowing up. Instead, there is another kind of supernova. And this other kind of supernova actually comes from a fairly tiny star. Ooh. It comes from what's called a white dwarf star. And a white dwarf star uh, is is actually quite small. Uh, the biggest white dwarf is about 1.4 solar masses. No bigger than that. That's that's small. It's fairly small. Uh, uh, a solar mass is what about the sun? Yes, a solar mass is exactly the sun. Yeah. That's that's where the unit comes from. So uh, a solar mass is something. The mass of the sun. Now it's it it isn't the sun because the sun's not going to do what I'm about to describe. 
Uh, but uh, a white dwarf is the leftover remnant that happens when a low-mass star ends its life. In fact, our, our own sun is going to create a white dwarf eventually. Uh, but a lone white dwarf is also not indicated, because once you create this lone white dwarf, it's just going to sit there, and it's just going to cool off forever and ever and ever, because it's not generating any more energy. But there is, as I said, this limit to how big you can build a white dwarf. The biggest white dwarf you can make is 1.4 solar masses. What happens if you make a white dwarf that is bigger than that? For instance, what if I have a white dwarf star, and there's a companion star nearby that starts to bleed material onto that white dwarf. If it does, I can up the mass of the white dwarf, and once it gets over 1.4 solar masses, it will also blow up, and it will blow up good. Now, this whole thing that I just described in the past, like, two minutes, okay, this is like a week in my class that we talk about this, because there are a lot more details that I'm just glossing over right here, but we got to, I swear we got to get to the punchline. These white dwarves, when they blow up, the interesting thing about them is we know how massive they are, we know they're exactly 1.4 solar masses, and we actually know their composition, we know what they're made of, and they're made of mostly carbon. And there are reasons why they're made mostly carbon that have to do with stellar evolution and uh, the end lives of stars that we literally don't have time to get to on this show, but I'm sure it will come up later on uh, on this podcast at some point. But the point is, there is a second kind of supernova, not the type twos, not the massive stars, but there's another kind called type one supernova. And type one supernovas are these white dwarves that blow up. And specifically, it's type 1a supernovas, if you want to get really technical that I'm actually interested in. And these are carbon detonation white dwarf supernovas. I know how big they are, I know what they're made of. Now, why is that important? Because if I know how big they are, and I know what they're made of, I know exactly how bright they should be when they blow up. And I know what you're thinking. Okay, great, so now you know how bright they are. Big whoop. Well, I can use that information. I can use how bright they should be and I can compare it to how bright they look, and then I can tell how far away it is. Well, that that seems strange. You're measuring distance somehow by how bright it is. Well, imagine the following scenario. Suppose that I have a 60-watt light bulb. The reason a 60-watt light bulb is called a 60-watt light bulb is because of the brightness of the bulb. That 60 watts, that is telling you how bright the bulb is. And so if I know that this is a 60-watt light bulb, but I move it really far away, it's going to look really dim. If I move it really close, it's going to look really bright, okay? So if it's right next to my face, the 60-watt light bulb is very bright. If it's four football fields away, it's very dim. So, like, the way to look at that, and, you know, again, I'm going to dumb this down for myself, even though you did a good job of it, but this analogy popped into my head. A 60-watt light bulb will light up a room, but it will not light up a field. For instance, yes, absolutely. So uh, how bright it appears is... Depends on the distance. How bright it is intrinsically is something that is known. It's a 60-watt light bulb. We can treat these type 1a supernovae as our 60-watt light bulb. We know how bright they should be. If we compare that to how bright they are, we can then calculate how far away it is. So they work as a distance indicator. They're what's referred to as standard candles. And the reason they're called standard candles is they have a known brightness. Okay, so in this case... My type 1a supernovae, that is a standard candle because I know what its brightness ought to be. So there was a study that was done in the 90s looking at type 1a supernovae in the distant universe. And so they looked at a bunch of these in the distant universe and they calculated their distance based on uh, their brightness. There's another way that you can calculate distance. 
to very, very distant objects in the universe. Because since the uh, 1930s, we've known that the universe is expanding that stuff that's really far away is moving away from us faster than stuff that's nearby, okay? This is a weird thing called the Hubble flow, and it deserves an entire show all of its own. Man, I, I hope you're writing all these down. I'm just I'm just tossing them off here of uh, show topics. Okay, uh, trust me, uh, most of them we already kind of had written down, but that one, hey, I'll put it on the list. Oh, yeah, absolutely, you should. You can measure the distance to distant objects using how fast they're moving away from you. It's a, it's a thing called redshift, specifically cosmological redshift. So basically, I could compare the distance that I got from my brightness calculation, and I could compare the distance that I got from my redshift calculation, and I could see if they, if they match. And they didn't. Specifically, it seemed as if supernovae, type 1a supernovae in the distant universe, were brighter than they should have been. They, they appeared to be closer than they should have been. So it seemed to imply that although the universe is expanding right now, it was expanding more slowly in the past, which led us to believe, well, that's really strange, but it seems that the universe is not only expanding, but it's accelerating in its expansion. So what's causing that acceleration in its expansion? Well, do you remember earlier when I was talking about the flat universe and, and how much of the universe is made up of energy? Yep. That energy is what's causing the universe to not only expand, but to accelerate in its expansion. And once we discovered it, we're like, hey, there's some energy coming from somewhere that's accelerating us, because you can't can't accelerate without energy. There's got to be something pushing us apart. What is that something? Well, it's energy, but we can't see it. Kind of like how there used to be this stuff that we found, this matter that we couldn't see, and we called it dark matter. Well, now we found some energy that we saw its effect. We saw that it was expanding the universe at an accelerated rate, but we couldn't see it. So we called it dark energy. Once again, this is not a commentary on its character, just that we cannot see it. We can't directly observe it. We can observe its effect on the universe. Okay, so that's where dark energy comes from. That's where dark matter comes from. And it's entirely consistent with this, what's called the standard cosmological model where we have about 70% of the universe made up of uh, energy and about 30% of the universe made up of matter, both normal and dark. Okay, so that's all consistent. Everybody's happy. Let's all go home. Oh, wait, there is this paper. And this paper says clearly right there in the clickbait headline, no, the universe is not expanding at an accelerated rate, say physicists. Okay, <clears throat> this headline is technically correct in that a number of physicists greater than one have said that the universe <laughs> is not expanding at an accelerated rate. But it's misleading in that it sounds like all physicists everywhere got together and all agreed, yeah, yeah, the universe is not accelerating. That's that's perfectly fine. And that's not what's happened. What's happened is, uh, I think it's three different researchers have put out a couple of papers where they have looked at type 1a supernovae and they've said, well, if you do a statistical analysis of these type 1a supernovae, while the most likely answer is that, yes, it's accelerating, uh, that it's expanding at an accelerated rate. If you look at the error bars on the measurement, the error bars are consistent with the universe not accelerating. So it's there's some doubt here. It's not a done deal. OK, so this is like during elections when we have polls done and they give that margin of error. We're within that right. margin of error is what you're saying. That's essentially what they're saying, is that a, a non-accelerating universe is within the margin of error for uh, uh, their results. Okay. 
Now, the problem with that is they have done, while, while it's fairly sophisticated math, they have only taken that piece of information. They've just said, okay, type 1A supernovae, let's just look at those, see what we got. The problem is they have not taken into account all of the other pieces of information that we know. So, for instance, uh, we could ask, uh, hey, how much matter is this? Because we could just look at how it is. And we could uh, we could look at the cosmic microwave background radiation and ask, what do those bumps and wiggles tell us about how much matter there is? If you add in constraints for uh, how much matter there is in the universe, it mostly rules out their non-accelerating universe again, because it, it's it, the error bar just barely crosses into that section, if you will. Uh, and if you add in the idea that the universe is flat, because it appears to be flat from every uh, measurement that we've made of it, that also constrains the area that you could look in. And so uh, our, our understanding of how much matter there is in the universe, our understanding of what the cosmic microwave background radiation tells us, and our understanding of what type 1A supernovae are telling us, if we put all three of these pieces of information together, they are what actually lock down this idea that 70% of the universe is energy and 30% of the universe is matter. Basically, you take the error bars of one measurement and you constrain them with the error bars on a second measurement and you constrain them with the error bars on a third measurement and they all lead us to this little tiny error circle that tells us that this is the way the universe behaves. So, yes, their headline is technically not a lie. Okay, but... so, so, all right, now I'm just trying to catch up with you here. Um, yes. While unlikely, this yes. hasn't been concrete proven incorrect, is what you're basically saying. Like, there is a possibility that this could be true, but more than likely you don't see it personally as true. Yes, that is what I'm saying. Okay. But I'm they saying did get I, a Nobel I, Prize for this. I mean, this should be say, stated. <clears throat> yeah, so uh, the, the accelerating universe, the folks who, who came up with the accelerating universe, they did get a Nobel Prize. Absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to cheat here. I apologize to the listeners at home, but I'm going to send Angelo a link to a plot here in the chat. And um, I'm going to do that because I, I really, really want to show him this plot. And I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm trying to explain all this stuff with at least one hand tied behind my back. You've sent because me this some... before, and this is what messed <clears throat> with my head. <laughs> yeah, so there are some there are some wonderful, wonderful diagrams. Uh, so what I've what I've sent Angelo, and I I don't know, do you guys put links in your show notes? I can post this on the Facebook page when oh, yeah. so, the so uh, when the actual episode comes out. So please go check out the Facebook page, and you'll see exactly what he's talking about with this supernova no supernova cosmology project okay so what we have here is is a plot and along one axis the vertical axis we're showing the fraction of the universe that is made up of energy and on the horizontal axis we're showing the fraction of the universe that is made up of mass okay so those are our two axes how much how much energy versus how much mass there is in the universe so when a layman looks at this the v would be the energy the m would be the mass uh yes and the the v is actually a lambda it's capital lambda so, okay. Uh, it's, it, it's just the nomenclature that they use. Okay. So on this, there is this set of like blue contours that's labeled S N E, and that is supernovae. And so you'll see that there's kind of a 
a dark blue area that's the most likely, and then there's a lighter blue that is within an error bar, and then there's a even lighter blue that's within another error bar. Basically, the guys who did this new analysis are saying that the supernovae data, if you actually look carefully at the error bars there, those error bars go out far enough that we could have a universe that's not accelerating. And the line for where that not accelerating thing is, is not actually on this plot, sadly. I'm sorry that that wasn't packed in here. But then what I'm saying, we take that supernova idea and we add to it this kind of green area that's vertical on this plot. That are the, that's the, the limitations placed on it by how much matter there is that we just see in the universe. And so that cuts a stripe through these contours, these blue contours. And it says, well, Sure, we've got these big error bars in the supernovae, but we've constrained it now to kind of a box in the middle. And then there's this kind of orange area that kind of goes diagonally through those. That's the fluctuations in the cosmic microwave background radiation. And so it's where those three things overlap. It's like a Venn diagram. Where those three things overlap, that's the universe that we live in based on the measurement. And that's where we get that constraint that 0.7 or 70% of the universe is uh, energy and about 0.3 is matter. Okay, so that's that's what this plot means and uh, that's why this plot is important. And this plot is why I don't buy the new paper, if that makes sense. Okay. So, so there you go. That's this plot in a nutshell and it only took us an hour to get to this plot. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> okay, so, all right, now let's Let's just go out on a limb here, and mm-hmm. I want to theoretically say that they're right. Uh, who? Who is they? The three physicists who say the universe is not expanding okay. at an accelerator so, rate. So the new guys, yes. Yes. Sure. So if they are correct, yes, they're, that's going to change the way we look at a lot of things. I know that currently, for example, we have this theory that you know is pretty sound and pretty widely accepted that long after we're gone, uh-huh. When we look up into the night sky, we will see nothing. Ah, yes. Okay. So uh, before we get to the end of the universe, can I take a step back and look at the beginning of the universe just sure. briefly? Sure. <laughs> the ratio of energy to mass in the universe also has ramifications for how old the universe is. So something that you, you and your listeners may be familiar with is a lot of uh, astrophysicists will tell you that, yeah, the universe is uh, about 13 billion years old. Yeah. Okay, billion with a B, 13 billion years old. If the universe is not expanding, it changes what that age ought to be, because we're essentially extrapolating backwards based on what the universe is doing right now. So if the universe isn't expanding, it changes the age of the universe. If the universe isn't accelerating, it also changes the age of the universe. But this 13 billion years is consistent with what we see in the rest of the universe. One of the things that it's consistent with, and I know I keep coming to this cosmic microwave background radiation, that CMBR, that cosmic microwave background radiation, uh, another way to think about it is it tells you the temperature of the universe on average. It's the the peak of the CMBR is the temperature of the universe. And that peak of the CMBR matches exactly what we expect it to be if the universe began the way we expected it, the the way we think it did, and that the universe is the age. And I mean, it matches exactly, like shockingly so. There is an amazingly beautiful plot of this that came out of the the cosmic microwave background radiation that it almost brings me to tears when I show it in my class. And this is one of those plots that I don't get to show it until the last day. 
because we've spent the entire semester building up the knowledge that they needed to truly appreciate and understand the plot. And then I show it to them and it's just, oh, God, it's so beautiful. Anyway, <laughs> so uh the results I've given are consistent with the observations of the age universe. So now let's talk about the end of the year. So let's talk about how does it all end? And it actually gets into this flatness thing in in a way. If the universe is curved in the one direction, it means that there's more mass than energy in the universe. So Big Bang happens, which that's probably a whole other show as well. Big Bang happens. Universe starts uh, accelerating apart. Well, not accelerating. We just had the bang. The acceleration is done. Uh, universe starts flying apart. Let's go with that. Okay. So universe begins to expand. If there's too much mass in the universe, then the gravity of all of the mass pulling on all of the other mass will make that expanding ball that is the universe slow down, slow down, slow down, and then stop and start to recollapse on itself. Okay. If there's way more energy than there is mass, then you can have that explosion, just uh, that, that expansion of the universe just keep going and going and going and going. The mass will never slow it down and stop it and bring it back together. So those are our two extremes. In between, in the middle, is where there's just enough mass that the universe will expand until time equals infinity, at which point it stops. And I know that's not very satisfying, except maybe to the mathematicians out there. Basically, uh, the speed at which the universe is expanding will asymptotically approach zero. Spell that. A- asymptotically? Uh, no, I can't. I can't do that. I need spell check to help me out with that. <laughs> uh, so over time, it will just get closer and closer and closer until it's indistinguishable from zero at t equals infinity. Now, if the universe is accelerating, let's just throw all that out, because not only will the universe continue to expand further, but it will expand faster and faster and faster as time goes on. Now, what are the ramifications? for? Okay, so if I have that 60-watt light bulb, remember our 60-watt light bulb? If I move it away from you, it looks dimmer. If I move it further away from you, it looks dimmer still. If I move it even further away, it looks dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. I could move it so far away, you just can't see it anymore. It's too faint for your eye to detect. Yeah. That is essentially the end result of what happens with galaxies, that all of the galaxies are moving apart from one another, and eventually they'll be so far away that you just can't see them. It will be below the detection uh, for light. Now, it gets a little more subtle than that because I've now ignored redshift, and not only will it get dimmer, it will get redder as it goes further away, and so all the brightness that used to be invisible light will be shifted down into infrared light, and then it'll be shifted down into radio waves and it'll just be completely undetectable once it's uh, far enough out. So uh, that is how we currently believe the universe will end, that sometime long, long, long from now, uh, we we will have a, a cold, empty universe where you, you won't see anything at all, which and seems seems kind of sad. When you say anything at all, uh, yes. now let's say, theoretically, our sun actually makes it to that point. Oh, which it, it totally won't. It sure. totally won't. We've already been over that on the show. Um, but let's just say that. Now, like, would we still be able to see our moon as it were? Because our planet probably uh, yes. ain't going to be. Okay. Any, anything locally where gravity dominates okay. over this dark energy that's trying to push the universe apart. Anything that's, that's gravitationally dominated. So, like, our solar system, sure, fine. Our galaxy, sure, fine. It's not going to tear itself apart. At least, we don't think it's good. There's, there's actually a non-zero chance that the galaxy, the universe, or the galaxy, the solar system, 
uh, the sun, uh, your individual atoms will all tear themselves apart because dark energy will push them apart. That's that's pretty fringe. Okay. It's a thing called the Big Rip. I actually like it because I think it sounds awesome, but uh, it's 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 probably not good. That's that's interesting. The Big Rip. Yeah, the Big Rip. Okay, so all right, but you know what you're basically saying is now, if for some reason this paper were to be correct, we would have yes. to ignore all those projections that we have for what is going to happen in the future, correct? Or would it just take longer to get there? It would probably just take longer to get there because, I mean, there are other problems with how the universe ends, uh, and it has to do with how much of the gas that goes into stars gets recycled. So imagine that I start, let's try it this way. Let's imagine that I start with a cloud of gas and I turn it into a star and the star lives and the star dies and then it blows up and it creates a bunch of gas again that can now collapse into a new star that can live and die and collapse into a new star, collapse, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, our sun's done this three times already. Uh, Yeah, about that. Uh, But what happens if every time I go around the circle, I lose a little bit of gas? Eventually, I don't have enough gas to make another generation of stars when I'm done. So uh, you could kind of think of it this. Let, let's let's try an analogy here. Imagine that there is only one pad of paper in the entire world. And when a piece of paper gets used, it gets recycled to make a new piece of paper. But every time a piece of paper gets recycled, we lose a tiny bit of it in the recycling process. Yep. Or someone loses a page out of the notebook and it doesn't make it back into the recycling. Well, I may have started with a 100-page notebook, but after 20 generations, maybe I'm down to a 50-page notebook. And after 100 generations, I'm down to a 20-page notebook. Eventually, I'm all out of notebook. So... Yeah. Uh, eventually, the universe will get cold and dark just because we ran out of stars. Okay, fair enough. Uh, wow, that was a lot that we went over in that ep- in this episode. Um, now I, I want to mention one last thing hmm. before I go. Okay. Because I, I I I know I've given you this grim fate where the universe ends in a very cold, dark, and lonely sort of way. Uh, but that time when that will occur, if our model of cosmology is correct, and that's mostly what we've been talking about tonight, it's truly cosmology, which is. An area of astronomy that is not my forte, I freely admit that. I know quite a bit about it, but it's not really my active topic of study. It is a long, long way off when the universe... Right now, we're at about 13 billion years into the history of the universe, so that's 13 times 10 to the ninth. So it's 13 times 10 nines. Wow. If the universe is going to end this way, that's going to happen in 10 to the 100th years so imagine a hundred tens multiplied by each so it is a long long way off yeah that's so, not anytime uh, soon we'll, we'll be long gone before it's more than like yeah we think the half-life of a proton is 10 to the 33 so uh <laughs> protons will have decayed by that point but that's that's a whole nother problem and goes into we totally don't okay so uh before we uh close out the show i have a couple quick things that i need to put out there for the world um First off, before I even do anything, I just want to say thank you for coming on, Clues. Uh, oh, of course. This was insightful, and, you know, I'm glad that you was able to debunk something that was confusing the hell out of me, and it was confusing me probably because it didn't make no sense. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so I feel better about myself for some strange reason. I, I would also like to extend the offer of, you know, I'd like to have you on. More often, you know, every six months to a year or something like that to go over something interesting with us because you're a wealth of knowledge. And me and Dan, as we cited in the very first episode, we are not astrophysicists. We are just playing one on the radio. <laughs> hey, I, I do love to talk about this. Uh, sure. 
Yeah, I, I know in the past, me and Clues on a different show did two science episodes. People seem to like them, so I'm hoping people like this one as well. Uh, please go to iTunes and hit that five stars on Fan of Astronomy. And also go to YouTube and, oh, when you go to iTunes, please leave a review as well. We'll read it right on the air. Go to YouTube and, you know, by all means, hit the comments, hit the like button. We're on both of those formats at all times. We have no reviews or questions this week, which is kind of good because I let clues talk. <laughs> yeah, I might have gone a little long. Sorry, sorry about that. Oh, it's okay. I mean, if I would have quieted you or stopped you and it would have diminished the understanding that you could put out there, then what was the point of the episode? Oh, okay, fair enough. I mean, that, that, we try to keep it, you know, in a very tight box on time. It's usually between like 45 minutes and like an hour five. But if an episode goes an hour and a half because the content requires it, then damn it, we're going an hour and a half. If it That's needs to right. go, if it needs to go two hours, same deal. You know, the content is what's going to drive exactly how long these episodes are, more than anything else. Clues, I don't know if anybody, you know, if you would like people to get a hold of you. Uh, this is a science cast, so these people will probably be talking to you about science and not uh, cardboard uh, games. <laughs> that's that's perfectly fair. I do I do enjoy science. It's kind of kind of my jam. Uh, so hey, if people want to hear more out of me, and I can't imagine why they do, there are a couple of other places you can do. Uh, I am on the Monday Night Magic podcast. That is a podcast about Magic: The Gathering, not Magic: The Illusions. It's about the card game. Uh, it records on Monday nights, so I think it's a pretty good name as far as that goes. Uh, you can you can find us on the internet uh, at at mtgcast.com is probably the easiest place to find that. There's also another podcast that I do about well random stuff. It's mostly geeky stuff, uh, things like uh, movies and TV and sci-fi books and all that kind of stuff. It's a show called Random Discard. Uh, you can find us at uh, let's see now I think it is randomdiscard.com is actually our our web address for that. Uh, so you can you can always reach me there. Your best way to reach me though, absolute best is via Twitter. And on Twitter, uh, you can find me, I am at Lockluze, which is spelled exactly not how it sounds, uh, but it is spelled probably how it is in the show notes, but just in case you're not near the show notes, uh, it is L-A-C-L-U-Y-Z-E. That's Z, that's Z-E for you Canadians, I guess. Uh, so there you go. Uh, that's probably your best way to reach me. And if you happen to be in uh, in, in mid-Michigan, if you're attending Central Michigan University, I recommend my Astronomy 111 class. As it's it's like this, but all semester. Ooh. It's great. Ooh, I'm not in Michigan. I need you to get to come. To, I need to get you to come to Pittsburgh. <laughs> yeah, the only problem with that is my wife's here and her her job's here, too. We've got the two-body problem. We have to try and get us both jobs, so that's... That's tricky. No, I understand that completely. Um, if you wanted to get a hold of me, you could get a hold of me at FOA Angelo on the uh, Twitter scape. And you can also, you know what, I'm going to put out my other Twitter, even though I don't. It's at Gonksuo. Um, I'm filthy there, and I don't watch what I say. So you're fair warned. Uh, I can confirm this is true. <laughs> um, you are fair warned, but on the FOA one, I am very restrained. I try to keep it within parameters that would be safe at work so <laughs> there's that also you can find me at aof at gmail wait aof something ah damn it i forget the the email address for the podcast <laughs> aofcast at gmail.com i think i don't know dan will fix it in the show notes i'm sure <laughs> yeah we'll fix it in post it'll be fine i'm sorry clues was talking i was drinking scotch these things happen <laughs> perfectly fair perfectly fair uh, also, you can 
like us on Facebook, and that would be facebook.com forward slash fan of astronomy, where I will be putting up that neat diagram that Clue sent me, so you can look at it and be as puzzled as I was. <laughs> uh, that's probably the best ways to find me. You can also find Dan, uh, Mr. Hording. He wasn't here today. I hope that he is here for next week's episode, because I don't have a physicist lined up. So <laughs> I kind of require him to be here for the next one. But you can find him at Dan Horning on Twitter. He He's on there fairly often and easy to get a hold of, and he does a bazillion other podcasts. Go check the other shows to find out what those are. So next week we will be going over the moon, as promised. We have, you know, interesting things to talk about there, how it was born, you know, the fact that it is drifting away from us, as Clues once taught me, and, <laughs> and many other things about it, how it's formed of a thing called regolith and all kinds of neat stuff. So please tune in for our show about Luna, the good moon. Uh, but Spoil- spoiler, it's not made of cheese. No, it absolutely isn't. It's made of really, really, f- at least on the surface. Underneath it, it's a little rockier. Anyway, we're going to talk about this next week. <laughs> Until the next time we are on here, as I always tell you, science is extremely interesting. If you don't have an interest in it, there's something wrong with you, because everybody likes to know how their VCR used to work, or DVD player. Damn it, I just showed my age. <laughs> <laughs> You guys, have a good night. Keep looking to the stars. It will always surprise you because they're always finding new things. What'd you think? Did you enjoy it? Well, if you did, head on over to patreon.com forward slash astronomy and pledge to these guys. For each patron they receive, the more they will be incentivized to improve the show. So help them out so they can help you out and throw them a couple bucks an episode. They will really appreciate it. Thanks. 